As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So I stopped him, got him over. I said, let's have a look at your bag, mate. It was full of ladies' knickers. Absolutely chocolate. Ladies' knickers and bras. So I ended up in Middlesbrough in 1989, um, which was extremely busy. Lots of street crime, lots of... Um, burglaries, uh, lots of, of assaults, uh, taking cars, etc. It was it was like a tsunami, a tsunami of crime, really, in those days. Organised crime, in terms of Cleveland, uh, has been going on for a lot of years. Importations, heroin, cocaine, ecstasy. So the first major case was the doctor, Dr. David Burke had got murdered in, in early 1990. The DCI um, received a um, anonymous letter um, basically taunting him that he's not going to catch the killer. We did a search of the actual premises and found a, 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 an empty co-op carrier bag. On that bag, eventually we found partial thumbprint inside the carry bag was a was a hammer that actually was used to to kill the doctor he was hit 19 times in the head and after about six weeks of very painstaking work brian leonard got a call to say we've found your man it was a guy called reginald james wilson who lived in middlesbrough when we did the house it was like a treasure trove under the stairs we found a rocket launcher, guns, crossbows, like an arsenal of, of bullets, etc., underneath the stairs. He came on my radar when I was uh, called um, to a shooting. Ray, can you come out? Lee Duffy's been shot. He's in, he's in uh, Middlesbrough General Hospital. So I went to see him, and he was the nicest guy you'd ever want to meet. Unfortunately, the next time... After that was when I got a phone call in the early hours of the morning. Ray, um, you need to come out. Lee Duffy's been killed. I got the job of going um, to the the morgue. We went and he was lying on the slab with just something over his modesty. Um, and he looked so peaceful. Actually, the surgeon, I knew... Um, said that if Lee had stood still, once he'd been, once he'd been um, knifed, 
he'd have still been alive. But Lee Duffy doesn't stand still. Lee Duffy runs after Alison. And basically, as he's running, his lifeblood's pouring out oh. of, his, of the wound. So Martin Road was filled with Lee Duffy's blood. Today, we have got Ray in the podcast studio. And this interview pertains some of it to the Lee Duffy case. We've had an endless fascination on the podcast about all the aspects of Lee Duffy. We've had many people come on from the underworld community who have talked about Lee Duffy, but we've not had anyone come on from law enforcement talk about Lee Duffy. So Ray was the detective sergeant on the initial case, and then on the murder case, he was second in command. But it's not just going to be about Lee Duffy. We're going to get to that. Ray's also worked on several other high-profile cases, including Dr. Burkett, the Wacky Backy Boat with Phil Berryman and his multi-million smuggling operation, and also the murder of Kate Simpson, a 93-year-old who was found wrapped in a, up in a carpet. She'd been burgled. Huge thank you to Jamie Boyle for arranging this interview. Um, Ray's book is going to be coming out next year. All the links for Jamie and Ray's stuff will be in the description box below the video. So there's a whole slew of books now, and we've published the audiobooks for Jamie on most of the books that he's got out there. So really fascinating story, so please check them out. Huge thank you then for coming on, Ray. No problem. So as a kid then... Where did you grow up and did you aspire to join the police as a kid? Uh, I didn't. Uh, I grew up in a place called Jarrow, which is on South Tyneside. Um, famous quite recently for an anniversary, the, the Jarrow March, which was in 1936. Um, it also has, I suppose, Steve Cram, the runner, is another um, Jarrow uh, person. What was the march about? The march was about um, unemployment. Ah. Um, the uh, the the people of Jarrow, the unemployment was something like 80 percent. Shipyards had closed down, and this was a march from Jarrow to London to hand a petition in. I think the prime minister at the time, Stanley Baldwin, uh, didn't take any notice of it. But years, three or four years later, the war started, and Jarrow sort of came back to to be in because of the build, need to build ships. So um, I'm a Jarrow lad. Um, I went to school in Jarrow, um, grew up in Jarrow in a council house in Jarrow. And uh, I, uh, I, I sort of never aspired, never even thought, there's no police in, in, in the family. Uh, a bit of teaching in the family. Um, my uh, uncle was uh, Uncle Arthur, was a Lancaster bomber pilot in the war, which he was a bit of my, a bit of a hero of mine. Uh, he went on to be to be involved in teaching, and he actually ended up as headmaster at Eton, which was was you know he was he was a sort of uh, a figure that I could follow in my in my youth. So my my youth really uh, my 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 formative years. My dad died unfortunately when I was five. Um. And uh, he, you know, he was obviously a big part of my life. 
My mum remarried after three years, and to be fair, my, my stepfather did his best. Um, he was a train driver, so we used to get free tickets yeah. to go to go all, all over the place. My grandparents lived in Berwick, Berwick upon Tweed on, in the borders. So I used to go up there a lot and spend uh, a lot of time um, in that area. Um, did your dad get ill then today at five or something? He, 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 yeah, he was. He had um, he had a heart attack. Oh my goodness! How old um, was he? He was he was actually fifty. He was in his late fifties. Yeah. Um, he married my mum. My mum was a lot younger. Mm. Uh, mum was twenty odd years younger. But you can imagine the well. You only imagine now the impact uh, of that on a five year old, because between five and nine. My mum my had to keep working. In those days, there wasn't the unemployment benefit. Must that have been devastating. Um, so in a lot of ways, um, in those formative years, I had to look after myself. I had two brother, had two half-brothers. Uh, my dad had two two boys who were a lot older than me. Um, but they, you know, it was, it, was, it, was, it was hard times. And I think looking back over the years, you, you, you realise that you, you've sort of had to you have had to get on your own two feet. Um, but the the policing side of things didn't happen really for a lot of years later. I was always um, involved in... in uh, my, my, my oldest brother played for Newcastle, Newcastle United, um, till he was 16, and then he, he, got, he got TB and couldn't play. Mm. So I was always involved in football uh, from a young age. And and I, and I was mentioning to Jamie that um, when I was just ten in junior school, I organised some friendlies. The school didn't have a team, Beadburn uh, Primary didn't have a team, so I organised games against other other schools because because the teacher couldn't be bothered to organise it. So I was managing a team at ten year old. Wow. Um, so I mean, like I say, football and and games etc. was was my life. Um, Any interest in the subjects taught at school? Uh, and yeah, I thought I, I was definitely um, more of a. And my dad was a really good artist, really good artist. Could have been a professional artist, there's no doubt about it. And my, my oldest brother, so I I, I loved art, um, PE obviously, um, and I liked history and geography. And I uh, in in years in in later years, which we'll come on to. Um, that was to that was to my benefit, um, but my ambition as I went through senior school and in general was to do something. I wanted to be a professional footballer, no doubt about it. I got a trial for Middlesbrough when I was sixteen, um, which didn't come off. But I played for the the district team and played for the for the local teams, um, and. When I was 16, um, and I tell this to the kids now when I teach them, I ended up with four GCSEs, which wasn't very good, considering I, you know, I was quite a bright lad. And somehow or other, um, I managed to get myself a job with British Tele Telecom as, a, as, an, as an apprentice in Newcastle, uh, in the exchange. And... Um, I managed to get myself on a course for two years, a business course, which would give me another A-level, an A-level and two GCSEs, which would be six, because my ambition turned to being a PE teacher. 
which was which was clearly to do with my involvement in football, etc. Um, so those two years that I was 16, 17 and, and going to 18, I looked around and uh, there was various college courses. Um, and I managed to, when I got to my, the, the 18th birthday, going into my, um, into my 19th, I managed to get, a, a, get to Newcastle University as a as train as a PE teacher, but also um, train as uh, outdoor pursuits, canoe and sailing, etc. So it was it was an absolute perfect life. <laughs> um, so the three years at, at university um, were the best years of my life. I mean, I, I was saying to I was saying to uh, Jamie that the ratio was five women to one one bloke so it, it, it didn't take any what actual years were they they were that was 1972 to 75 so it was 18 to 18 to 21 right so that when like the disco music was out and everything absolutely yeah, yeah 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 well we we i was i was to, again i was talking to Jamie about this we actually had believe it or not we had hot chocolate which was a, a top top band at university, which was which was a total yeah. coup for the university, total, mm. because you can imagine it, like Newcastle University mm. and and Errol, Errol Brown singing. Yeah, it was packed. That wasn't that. Packed. I believe in miracles. That's the ones. You yeah. sex a thing. Yeah, all them. All them. <laughs> so that 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 you can imagine those three years of my life were like. Tremendous. Yeah, from a from a sort of. Uh, Domestic point of view, um, I met a girl um, at college who was a year younger than me, and stupidly we we got engaged when I was uh, I would have been twenty and she'd have been nineteen, far too young. Um, but you know we we we, we enjoyed ourselves. <laughs> the, my last year at uni, um, which was seventy four seventy five, um, a friend of mine was playing up. Uh, in the Scottish League for our broth. At that time, our broth were were, the, were in the the old first division or Premier League in the last season, and he managed to get me a trial um, at our broth, and I actually played for our broth in 1975, which um, was fantastic because I scored on my debut mm. against Hearts because <laughs> I used to play centre forward. Um, so in that in that way, that that sort of um, you know, kept me going in, in in that way. I managed to get myself a job um, at a school in uh, Peter Lee, which is in County Durham, a school called Shotton Hall, um, as a PE teacher. So I'd actually achieved my dream. I'd actually, you know, a football, a, a lad who couldn't, wasn't good enough to play professional football, but doing PE and getting paid for it. Those five years um, were quite crucial in my in my future, and I'll tell you why. Um, in terms of the PE side, um, when I joined in 1975, the school, I was given the year seven, or the, the first year, football team. I played at a decent level, so when I, when I took the first few training sessions... Um, I looked at them and I thought, these are good. These are like good lads. There was about 14 or 15 of them. Um, and as as this sort of year moved on, 
it became apparent that I had about five or six really high-level footballers. As time went on, two of the two two twins played. One played in goal and one played centre half. Called Colin and Keith Oakley. Their dad had played in goal professionally for Hartlepool United, and um, they basically those two and another two lads. One of them's not with us now, Malcolm Davidson. Um, played for the county. Played for, and Colin. In 1979, played for England schoolboys wow. in goal, wow. and I got to see him play, mm. and it was like, it was like total icing on the cake. And he played seven. He played for Sheffield United professionally. His brother, twin, played for Crystal Palace, which is quite unusual. To have, I know there is brothers, but um, and uh, it was it was brilliant. It was brilliant. In 1979, just. As I was sort of five years in, the headmaster changed and the headmaster wasn't really uh, a supporter of Ray Martin. So it came that there was some a promotion available. The guy who started with me, who who is a lovely, lovely lad, Brian Old, um, got the promotion and it really knocked me end in. It really knocked me ending. But I was thinking, what, what else can I, do? can I do? What else? What else is there? And this was the biggest decision in my life. There's no doubt about that. Cleveland Police were advertising for PCs. And I thought, Phew. so I, I talked to a few people. Um, I didn't want to go back to Northumbria. I didn't want to go back to home because I had a flat in Peterley. And and Billingham's only only uh, ten minutes down the road from there, Cleveland. So I applied in um, the beginning of nineteen eighty, and uh, I got accepted. Big decision, big decision. You know, uh, just I've been through college three years. I've done five years teaching, eight years of my life gone, but. The other big factor was I had met a young lady who had left the school in 1979 called Janet. And uh, she eventually became my wife. <laughs> so it was another factor that I like, I think I need to get out of the school and get out, start another life. So we started, we, um, we were going out from 1980. She was, she's a lot younger than me. She's nine years younger than me. Um, but I joined the police in uh, 1980, um, went to RAF Dishworth to train, which is the old, old RAF base. Uh, I was there 10 weeks and then got posted to Billingham, which is um, a small town north of the Tees, which is part of Stockton on Tees. Um, quite quieter than Middlesbrough, quieter than, than Stockton as well. Um, but I learned my trade over two years uh, in uniform at, uh, at, at Billingham. Some really um, funny jobs. I think one of, the, one of the funniest, it wasn't funny at the time, but 
one of the funniest is I was just on nights by myself driving my panda around and I saw this guy on a on a bike with a great big satchel and I thought nah I'm gonna right place at the right time um and I, th I thought that he's worth a stop him like so I stopped him got him over said let's have a look in your bag mate it was full of ladies knickers absolutely chocolate ladies knickers and bras so oh, no no this is not right this is not right like new ones that he was trying to flog or was he no. a knicker sniffer he was off the line off the line off the lines going round pinch so locked him up on suspicion of theft took him to the police station went to do his house he lived with his mum and dad need to do his room upstairs you couldn't get in stolen clothes Stealing clothes off the line. All women's clothes. All women's clothes. Unbelievable. Big, a big lad as well. So that was one of the first sort of. What was he doing with the clothes? Just wearing them in the house. He was wearing them. Wearing them, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wearing them. <laughs> Suspenders a lot. <laughs> so that was that was one of my that was one of my first uniform um, arrests. <laughs> Another one worth mentioning is, um, again, I think, I think I worked out that you have to sort of be and get yourself in the right place at the right time. It's no good just driving around aimlessly. So there was one day I was down at a place called Port Clarence, which is a quite deprived area on the banks of the Tee, and we just saw this lad on. A, I was with somebody else. Uh, I just saw this lad on a on a, a pedal cycle. I thought, that looks that looks too new, that. So we'll, we'll give him a stop anyway. Stopped him and he ran off. We got him, got him back. Um, had a look at it and it actually had um, the the postcode on, of a, a Billingham postcode. So it was clearly pinned and stolen. Again, locked him up and went to, went to his house. And I think we recovered something like 200 bikes. He'd been a serial bike bike thief for for loads of years, and his mother like, what's all the bikes down here? Oh, well, he likes bikes and he he fixes them for people. Oh yeah, he fixes them all right. He pinches them. So stupidly, stupidly, I put a um, an advert in the local paper saying we've recovered all these bikes. Come and have a look. Well, people were just coming and saying, yeah, that's my bike taking the bikes but we got rid of all the bikes he got charged with something like a hundred stolen bikes Great. so again that was like that was sort of me in my formative CID years in uniform did you have to go to any autopsies yeah I mean it it, it what happened was that when I used obviously sudden deaths let's say old people have died I used to I used to get sent to loads one one um, one that sticks out in uh, it's in the book is um, I got sent to one in in Billingham just by myself. Um, Ray, can uh, can you go to this address? This guy hasn't been seen. The next door neighbour, the back door is slightly open. The next door neighbour doesn't want to go in. So I went and uh, opened the back, pushed the back door, and um, went into the kitchen. And this guy is like obviously dead, been dead a while. But 
um, he'd been, um, he, he, he had no trousers on. And it was very, very, a very strange situation. Um, anyway, he, um, he, he'd obviously been living there by himself. And there was like a, a trail through the front room between bottles of empty bottles of brown ale. So he'd obviously where he walked up to the to the uh, the toilet upstairs. So he's lying he's lying there like that. And I I thought well I'll go I could hear something upstairs and I was like there's something upstairs. It's, went upstairs and um, the bathroom. Believe it or not, there was a donkey tied to the bath a donkey with it obviously hadn't been looked after it was there was manure all over he'd been keeping a donkey upstairs now you might think well why would you keep a donkey upstairs but apparently he used to keep it out the back and uh, all the kids were like uh, injuring it and that so he put it upstairs out the way so I, I got the I got the police the the doctor out to certify him dead, and the doctor's like, oh, I'm not I'm not going anywhere near anything upstairs. So I got the RSPCA out, and when they came, they said, well, where's the donkey? Like, I said, oh, it's upstairs. Oh, I said that's going to be a problem. He said, I didn't realise this, but horses and donkeys can't go downstairs. Because of because of the 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 way the, the 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 legs are, so what a carry on they had to get it get this donkey down the stairs, so that was like <laughs> how that did was, you get it? Well, eventually they got it. They just pulled it down and got just it down. Pulled it down. Yeah, yeah. But you can imagine in uniform, like and I'm oh, and the doctors, the the police surgeon, like oh get me out of here, mm. uh, he's dead. <laughs> get me out of here. <laughs> um, but that was that was like in uniform. So that was that was sort of. I used to get sent to a lot of a lot of uh, of dead bodies. What about when they cut the bodies open? Did you have to watch one of them? Yeah, 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 yeah. How was that Post feel Martin. first time seeing that? Um, it was. How was I put it? I be I think I became hardened to to actually seeing. Uh, we were just talking about this a few weeks ago. Some of my colleagues and that was there was no um, there was no uh, systems in place to help you. There's no counselling, anything like that. Used to go to jobs and maybe go and have a couple of pints afterwards. Um, but in terms of the the actual autopsy or the the post mortem, you got used to it. You got used to it. You got used to seeing the insides of people, and you know. And the one thing that was really good was that in in my first few, the the police uh, the pathologist was really good really explained everything this is you know when as he's doing it um and i got to know the i got to know the pathologist quite well uh, over the years um and i mean he the, the pathologist was actually the pathologist on the lee duffy my first uh post-mortem that i went to but i don't think you can you can't play down the impact of seeing um you know a body dead does it make you philosophical about mortality? Yeah, it does. Yeah, without a doubt. Without a doubt. Yeah. Life's very short. Life's short. And I mean, the last few years, you know, I've, we'll, I'm sure we'll come on to it. Um, you know, you, you realise that you make the most of it when you're here. Make the most of it. 
you know. Um, but anyway, um, in, in the early years, then what was your biggest challenges? I think in in the in terms of the police, my biggest challenges were adapting to the police culture. Um, you know, it was very much. Uh, I was on a shift of of PCs. Um, I think. Uh, I think one of the challenges I set myself was to get my sergeant's exam out the way uh, as soon as possible, and I, I managed to do that uh, with just three years in. I managed to get through the sergeant's exam um, because I I did think you know I've missed out teaching-wise, on a promotion, but I want to put myself forward for for, uh, for, for, for being a, going up the, up the, up the ranks. Um, so I, I passed my, my um, sergeants in 1983, so I had three years in. Um, in, that, in 1983, which was quite a, an influential year, um, my wife became pregnant, um, so she had my daughter in 1984, but I got the chance to apply for CID um, at Stockton as, as what they call an aid, CID aid. Um, and I, um, I applied, I think it was April 1983, got in. And um, they didn't, the aid, you didn't get any reported crime. You just had to go out and find people on the street crime. Um, so lots of shoplifters, lots of people who were... Uh, breaking into cars and things like that. Lots of nights, working on nights, doing observations. Um, so it was a real grounding in basic sort of police work, if you like. Um, but we had some fantastic uh, experiences. I mean, um, one good one was um, we were having a load of uh, metal thefts from uh, the railway. And... Uh, there's no CCTV in those days. You know, it was like either catch them on the job or catch them at home with, with the gear. And um, we had a, we had a, um, an observations point on this, looking over on this railway. And uh, we saw this van pull up and uh, there was three or four of us um, start pinching the, the, the copper wire. And uh, I mean, there was a lot of, lot of money in it. You know, a lot of money in it. Anyway, the they'd loaded that much on to the to the back of the van, <laughs> the back of the wagon. They, they could only drive about twenty or thirty yards and it just collapsed. Oh, great. So we were all jumped on them and got them. And uh the, the something had like over a ton of, of uh of copper. Might seem simple, but it's it was my grounding in in dealing with street crime, if you like. Um as humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. In those early days as well, um, just I, I went on my CID course at Wakefield, um, which was 10 weeks of, uh, of debauchery, really. <laughs> learning learning yeah. a lot of law, but also drinking a lot of beer. Um, but I, I got through that in 1985. We had our daughter Laura in 1984, um, and uh, then I went. I was a I was a fully fledged detective. So the early the early early days of I was in Stockton CID, which is is not as busy as Middlesbrough, but it's it's busier than most places. I would say sort of same as sort of any town centre place. Um, one of the jobs that um, you mentioned there um, was a murder that occurred in a, in Stockton at a place called Heartburn, um, and it was involving a 93-year-old woman. And what had happened is it, it had be, there'd been a burglary gone wrong. She'd obviously disturbed them and they'd wrapped her up in a in a carpet. Um, there was about a hundred officers on the job, and it was a big, big job in those days. This was 1987, 80, 87, 88. Um, and we, I wasn't actually on the, the, the murder inquiry. I was doing just normal CID work. And me and another guy, uh, Alex Watson, had got some information about some burglaries around about that area, but not exactly... Uh, spot on in Hardburn. So we went over to Middlesbrough to a, a children's home to arrest these two young lads, 15-year-old. Got the got the, got them in the car, got a social worker in the car as well. Me and Alex are driving back from Middlesbrough to Stockton, which is only 10 minutes. And as we're driving back, I thought, well, I'm, I'll, I'll just ask, you know, about any what they've done. So I asked one of them and... Uh, he said, it wasn't me that wrapped her in the carpet. Well, I nearly, I nearly crashed the car. I nearly crashed the car. And the, the social worker was shaking. Um, so me and Alex looked at each other and I thought, mm, we'll get, get them back to the police station and then we'll, we'll get them arrested for murder. So we got back to the police station and uh, put them in the cells. We'd already arrested them for burglaries, but not murder. So I went upstairs. The incident room was at the top floor at Stockton Police Station. And the, the DCI, I can still see him sitting there now. Uh, we went up and shook his hand and went, we've done it, boss. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, we've, we've got two arrested for murder. You've what? Yeah, we've got two arrested for murder in the cells. And anyway, what happened was the two of them blamed each other. And there was a third, there was a third lad, all juveniles, um, blamed each other. Um, they all got convicted at court, um, but about four or five years later, they appealed on the basis of they weren't um, mentally fit to stand trial. And they all got off. All got off. Wow. But, yeah, which was absolute tragic. Tragic. It was definitely them. There's no doubt about it. They've done, they've done a cold case review within the last three or four years, and it, there's nobody else. What initial sentence did they get? They all got found guilty of manslaughter. 
they all got about five, I think it was between five and ten years. Um, but they were blaming each other. And they, they went to trial and got found guilty of, um, of manslaughter. How often does um, people just confess like that guy said, it wasn't me who Very rolled. rarely. Very, Very rarely. rarely. Very rare. Very rare. Yeah, yeah. So that was my first um, sort of murder involvement, if you like. And I'd only, I'd only got, what, seven, seven years servicing, seven, eight years. Um, so I, I applied for a couple of sergeant's posts um, and eventually I got promoted in 1989 with nine years service to Middlesbrough. I, I was one of the few, along with another, another lad, who we stayed in CID, which was, which was quite unusual then. Um, we we normally had to um, you had to go into uniform first as a sergeant and then go into say I apply for CID. So I ended up in Middlesbrough in 1989, um, which was extremely busy, extremely busy. Lots of street crime, lots of um, burglaries, uh, lots of uh, assaults, uh, taking cars, etc. It was it was like a tsunami, a tsunami of crime, really, in those days. I mean, fortunately nowadays it's much reduced. Um, but in 1989, I um, I went on. A, I was in charge of a, I think it was about six or seven detectives as a sergeant. I had my own shift, um, which was great. Um, my boss, um, my my DCI was Brian Leonard, who. Um, I knew because he was DI at Billingham for a short time before he got promoted to uh, to Middlesbrough. So he was a really competent guy, um, knew what he was doing, very experienced, looked after me in many ways. Um, so the first major case really in, in Middlesbrough um, was the doctor, Dr. David Burke had got murdered in, in early 1990. It was subject of BBC Crime Watch. Um, it happened in February 1990, and we would no idea who'd done it. No idea who'd done it. Um, uh, the weeks went past and turned into months. Nothing was happening. The DCI um, received a um, anonymous letter. Um, basically taunting him that he's not going to catch the killer. Um, and in many ways, that letter was the downfall of the the murderer. Really? Yeah, it was. And uh, I'll tell you why. Not like the, the what was the case? The Yorkshire Ripper. There was a lot of fakes, wasn't yeah, there? In that this, one, this was him. This was this him. was really him. It was proved it was him eventually. So we went. We basically um, had a fingerprint a thumbprint on a carrier bag. The carrier bag was proved to be the... Uh, inside the carrier bag was a was a hammer that actually was used to, to kill the doctor. He was hit 19 times in the head. Um, now, the, the, the way that the person got in was he'd put a note through the doctor's door from a, a fake... Uh, sorry, a, a, an existing courier service, Demon Dispatch, saying there's a parcel for you. Can you ring this number? The number was a telephone box around the corner. 
So he'd put the note through, gone to the telephone box. The doctor had obviously rang the telephone box and then the murderer had gone round and hit him with a hammer and killed him. Not only had he killed him, but he'd put green cord round the doctor's uh, um, wrists and pulled him around into a, into a back room so that if you looked through the letterbox, you wouldn't be able to see the doctor. So when we arrived, we, we got the call um, that his, his daughter had actually gone and found him, which was, which was tragic, mm. absolutely tragic. Um, so the doctor um, was found dead. Um, we, we did a search of the actual premises and found a, 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 an empty co-op carrier bag. On that bag, eventually we found a partial thumbprint. Um, and also the green cord. Initially, I was involved in trying to find where the green cord was from and we couldn't find anything anywhere. So we knew we had a thumbprint. In those days, the fingerprint bureau, which was at Durham, had to do everything manually. Nowadays, it's done, um, it's done uh, by computer. Um, we just couldn't find anybody to match this thumbprint. In, in so about about the beginning of March, maybe the end of March, Brian Leonard decided that everybody that got arrested in Middlesbrough. Their, doesn't matter what it was for shoplifting or whatever, their fingerprints would be compared with this thumbprint. And after about six weeks of very painstaking work, Brian Leonard got a call to say, we've found your man. And it was, Reg, it was a guy called Reginald James Wilson who lived in Middlesbrough. He'd been only released in 1989 from a five-year sentence for a robbery. So he'd only been out a matter of months. Um, so the question was, what? how do we actually get him? Because he's obviously dangerous. Um, he's obviously murdered somebody. He's murdered the doctor. So Brian Leonard was an ex-regional crime squad uh, officer. So he got the regional crime squad to come and follow him for a couple of days to see what he was doing. In those couple of days, he'd actually um, burgled a house, rang a local um, furniture uh, buyer and got them to come and empty the house whilst the police were watching him. So that's how much, that's how much, he, uh, how many walls he had really. Um, so anyway, eventually Brian Leonard said, right, next time, the next day when he comes out, grab him so they, they got him he, he actually went to a phone box outside his house in Middlesbrough and they all piled in and got him he was arrested when we did the house so he was arrested and taken to Middlesbrough when we did the house it was like a treasure trove of um, he'd be in the loft he'd been practicing the um, the letter that he'd sent to Brian Leonard he'd been practicing he even left the stencil, it was stenciled. He'd even left the stencil. So that was like a major jigsaw to put together. Under the stairs, we found uh, a rocket launcher. Honestly, a rocket launcher, a big rocket launcher. Guns, 
um, crossbows, uh, like an arsenal of, of bullets, etc., underneath the stairs. What we found later on was that he'd been going out at nights, uh, stalking, you know, animals and, and living off the land. Um, so I got, I was really pleased Brian Leonard got me to interview him. I interviewed him 13 times and he was strange, to say the least. Me and a, another a detective, uh, Ray Bowers, interviewed him and we just like, he is, is absolutely deranged. What kind of things was he saying? Well, he was, it was the way he was looking at you. He wasn't saying much. He was like looking at you as though he, his eyes were piercing you, you know. He, he said very, very little. He said very little. Like Hannibal Lecter. I think, I think his solicitor was frightened of him. Honestly, I think his solicitor was, was frightened of him, Jerry O'Shea. Um, in the 13, you know, when it, was, it was a lot of interviewing over several days. He didn't say very much at all. But it was his demeanour and the waves. And he, he had like a, um, a tattoo down here of a serpent, which, you know, made him look... Bloody hell. Yeah. Anyway, um, we, uh, we put the, the, the thump, thump into him. There's no reply. Um, but there was a lot of circumstantial evidence. We haven't got enough... We haven't got enough time to go through it all, but there's a lot of circumstantial evidence. And he went to trial uh, in 1991, early 1991, and uh, at Durham Crown Court. The judge um, was a guy called um, Humphrey Potts, who eventually um, went to the Court of Appeal. And all, all the evidence went through. They didn't get to, the jury didn't get told about the guns, etc., because it would have been prejudicial to him. Um, the, we had to, the, the, all, the, all the evidence when he was summing up, he said, There's, I've never seen a case with so much circumstantial evidence that points to him. So he got found guilty of murder. The jury were then told about the guns and set around, like, there's two or three of them crying, women. Um, so when he, he told him to stand up, and he wouldn't stand up, he told him to stand up, and he stood up, he said, for you, Reginald Wilson, life will mean life. He's one of the few people in the country, things change a little bit, he's one of the few people in the country to get a life sentence, very like the recent events um, in London, that he's one of the few, he's, he's still in now. What is it? Do you know which one? Uh, he's in Wakefield, I think. Wakefield. I think in Wakefield. But he's been around loads of prisons because he's, he's a bright... He tried to escape from Franklin in Durham uh, about 10 years, 10, 10, 12 years ago. What method? Uh, he had a, um, uh, some sort of ladder, made a little ladder, but he couldn't, he couldn't get the ladder through the hole that he'd made. Um, and Franklin's supposed to be high security, like. Do you know what his behaviour in prison's been it's like? It's been outrageous. He's been assault, assaulting people and assaulting prison officers. A friend of mine who I know through the football actually is a is a retired prison officer and said to us, Ray, he is absolutely not right. 
You know, he's caused so many problems in prison. He's, I think he's in the top like six or seven in the country for most for dangerous behaviour. Yeah. yeah. Good grief. So if he gets out, I'll, they'll have to do something about me. Wow. And Brian Leonard. But um, he's, he's served, what he's served, thir- he's served uh, 30 years now. Good grief. Not likely to get out. Wow. What a That's, story. Yeah. And that was subject of a, a Crime Watch, initially Crime Watch, and then a Crime Watch file after after the um, the event. And then last year, sorry, year before last, I did a, um, a Murder Town, which was part of the, the Crime and Investigation Channel. Uh, I did a documentary on, on uh, Dr. Burkett in Middlesbrough, mm-hmm. um, which was... It was a bit spooky being in those in con- in the road where he was uh, where we were found. And I, I've been in. The good thing about it is that I've been in touch with the doctor's um, daughter. His wife's now died. The doctor's wife's now. But I've been in touch with the doctor's daughter, and it was lovely to talk to her after all these years. Um, what was the murderer's name again? Reginald James Wilson. I bet you people are going to Google the hell out of that. I bet there's, there's a lot online it's, about him. There is a lot online. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Never heard of that case. That's that yeah, is fascinating. It, and the, the the doctor was an eminent uh, skin specialist in mm. North Tees Hospital. Lovely guy. So you know. unnecessary. And absolutely unnecessary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what was the next big one you were on then? Well, the next one, um, date wise, was Lee Duffy. Well, how did Lee Duffy first come on your radar? He came on my radar when I was uh, called um, to a shooting in Middlesbrough. Um, what had happened was, um, I was, I think I must have been two or ten or something. Um, Ray, can you come out? Lee Duffy's been shot. He's in he's in uh, Middlesbrough General Hospital. We've um, we've got some dis- some some um, descriptions and cetera and. Uh, of the people who shot him, um, so I, got, I went to the I went to Middlesbrough Police Station. Brian Leonard was the DCI. Um, we need to go and see Lee uh, in 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 Middlesbrough uh, Middlesbrough General. So I went to see him, and he was the nicest guy you'd ever want to meet. Nicest, he said. Look, Ray, he said, I ain't. There's no way am I giving you a statement. None. He said, please yourself what you do. He said, I'm not giving you a statement. I'm not cooperating. Um, that's the end of it. it was of course, Brian Lennon and I said, he said, you need to go back and see him. You need to go back. So I went back. The ne- I mean, I looked at his foot and the, the doctor's saying, it, if that had been two foot higher, he's dead. He's dead. He said, it's hit his foot and gone like and took the top off his, off his foot. Because what he happened was he dived over the... There was like a... It's like a speakeasy in Middlesbrough. Like a, an illegal drinking den, if you like. He, these two guys had come in, um, two West Indian guys, came in, sh- put the gun up, one of them shot him, and as, he, as he's seen them, he's dived over the bar. And the, the, the gun, the pellets, had hit his foot and hit the bar. So we actually had some material to... To recover. Um, so I goes to the police station. I goes to the general and then went back to the police station. And we had no idea who they were. We just knew they were 
one of them was had like rasta um hair and then there was, a, there was another uh, west indian looking guy um so a few days went past and then some information came in that it was two guys from west midlands who when we did some digging one of them was wanted for a robbery in the west midlands already and then the other one had associate had an associate in Middlesbrough. So, me and a, a, a DI Dave Dave Scott got the job of going down to West Midlands to liaise with them to get them get two of them arrested. So we went to um, near Winston Green Prison. Um, we had a nice curry beforehand, um, and then the next morning, early doors, we, the firearms team, West Midlands firearms team. Went and arrest. They wouldn't arrest them without the firearms team because um, they were known uh, criminals. Anyway, we got both of them um, arrested and uh, we they were transported back to, um, to Middlesbrough. Uh, one of them, they were separated them, obviously. Um, one of them was in a car with the regional crime squad and then the other one was in a car with me and, and Dave and, and the rest of them. And on our way back, although it was probably totally illegal practice, uh, we were saying to him, well, why don't you just, why don't you just admit it? You're, gonna, you're going away for five, year, five or six years anyway for this other robbery because they actually had CCTV for this other robbery. Uh, no, I'm not, I'm not. But he was on the, he was on the borderline of admitting shooting Lee Duffy. In the end, Lee Duffy never gave a statement, but this, but they decided to prosec prosecute these two, and they got charged. In the end, it didn't go anywhere. Didn't go anywhere. The the other one, the one who was wanted for the for the robbery in uh, in West Midlands, was charged, and I, th I think he went to prison for four or five years. Um, but that was the first time that I'd been involved with Lee Duffy. And what did you learn about Lee through that case? I mean, um, for people who are not familiar with who he was, yeah, who was he? He, he was a very prominent um, enforcer, drug dealer, could have been a handy boxer, could have been. Um, but he was very much an enforcement agency in his own, in his own right. Um, drug dealers taking drugs off them, taking money off them. Um, areas of Middlesbrough that he owned, if you like. He was also very heavily involved with Tyneside connections. Um, he was used as a hired hand sometimes if if people needed, um, you know, sorting out. Um, so he, if you like, he was at quite a high level quite a high level in terms of criminality um, and obviously people don't come up from West Midlands to shoot you and kill you if you're not at a, at a high level so he was involved in drugs involved in in enforcing drugs and also um, a big a big man a really big man um, and could have been a, a very um, talented boxer 
When you saw him then that first time, yeah. what was his physique like? He was big, big, really, arms three times the size of mine. A neck like an elephant. Um, but a nice, quite a good looking lad, quite a good looking lad. Um, but he was big. He was about, I think he was about 6'4", something like that. Um, like Dolph Lundgren then? Yeah, yeah. And like hands like shovels. You can imagine how, you know, he's been brought up boxing. Um, and, I mean, you could you could imagine him, like, being on a door. Um, and I think he did work on doors at one stage. But there was no... He was very straightforward um, in his approach. He didn't... He wasn't, you know, he wasn't going to get involved in... He, was, he wasn't abusive or anything, but he wasn't going to get involved in any cooperation with the police in many ways he he, he he avoided the police but he was never antagonizing never antagonizing very rare so that was my first sort of feelings about lee duffy that um he was a, a massive handful massive handful it would have taken four or five bobbies to to arrest him when was the next time he pops up in your career? Well, the, the, the next time um, was uh, he, he, he got um, in South Bank, which is a different division to Middlesbrough. Um, somebody um, threw petrol over him and tried to set him alight. Um, they didn't. They didn't. They didn't harm him much. Was, was there a motive him. behind that? I think he. He's obviously been antagonising their family um, because he used to go around Middlesbrough. I mean, we got lots of reports. I wasn't actually part of the the reports. We got lots of reports of him going around just knocking people out. Um, you know, obviously a lot of this surrounds drugs debts and, and drugs dealing. Um, but he also, I think, started to go into the world of... If there was it started to get out of hand a little bit. Firearms involved, you know, threatening people. Uh, so it, he was up in the ante. He was up in the as the as the the months went by. He was he was up in the ante. And uh, people have asked me about about him. He wasn't going to last a long time. He wasn't. He, there was no way, unless he gave up his lifestyle, which he wasn't likely to. Do, there's no way he was going to last very long. So the next time, I, unfortunately, the next time after that was when I got a phone call in the early hours of the morning while I was in bed from John Kelly, who was the DI at Middlesbrough. Ray, um, you need to come out. Lee Duffy's been killed. Hold on, and before we go there, uh, yeah. what happened uh, with the petrol situation? Well, the petrol situation, yeah. the guy um, got charged with... Um, he got charged with grievous bodily harm. Um, in the end, nothing happened about that because because of events that were to come. So he threw petrol on Lee. Threw petrol on him, lit him, lit him, lit him. Ran off. Lee ran after him. Put all the put all the. He, he got burnt a bit. Lee put all the petrol out and knocked this guy out outside the outside a pub. We didn't actually deal with it, but it was that's what happened. Um, so uh, you know it was it was one of the, it's another event. Seri could have been a very serious event. Um, 
but he uh, he 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 and then got charged with grievous bodily harm. That guy, but it didn't it didn't end up um, being convicted of anything because of later events. So you get a call saying he's dead. He's dead. Um, I um, we we knew we knew that Lee was involved in a lot of stuff, and we knew he was sailing very close to the wind. Um, so I went. I went. My wife said. I said, "We're going to get Lee Duffy's being killed because she knew. Um, she knew about Lee Duffy from me going down, having to go down to West Midlands and 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 that, you know. Um, so I went to Middlesbrough and um, I got got briefed off John Kelly. I got the job of going um, to the the morgue. Um, with with Brian Leonard in the morning in the next morning, um, they they hadn't done the autopsy, they hadn't done the, the post mortem. That was later. Um, me and Brian Leonard went to the and I can remember it vividly. We went and he was lying on the slab with just something over his modesty, um, and he looked so peaceful. But I thought to myself, this is like a tragic waste of a person. Because, you know, you looked at him and he's he was just massive. He was he was just a big guy. And uh no very few other other than a, a wound under his um in his axilla, which is under your arm, other than the wound there, which we had a look at, um there was hardly anything on him. Hardly any any little little grazes here and there, and it's, that was it was such a waste, a waste. And we thought, of, you know, and any you know, by that time, like I had two children, uh, three children, um, and I'm thinking, you know, it's 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 tragic what's happened. I don't care, you know, that he's a drug dealer, and that it was tragic what happened to him. So the autopsy. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply happened um the doctor the the surgeon who was actually the surgeon i knew um said that if lee had stood still once he'd been once he'd been um knifed he'd have still been alive do you know the circumstances of what happened to him yeah i do he was um i know fact and there's a little bit of fiction the facts are that Lee Duffy and David Allison, who was his murderer, 
uh, went out. They were in a, they were in a, another different sort of uh, drug den, Afro Caribbean club um, on Martin Road. They'd had an altercation inside, and Leeds sent Alison outside. I want and you need to fight me. Alison later. Um, well, I'll come on to the, the court case and uh, later. Alison went outside. Um, Lee Duffy, as far as we're aware, didn't have any weapons at all. None. Just had a, a leather jacket on, which we still had on, which was which were recovered um, uh, in the mortuary. Lee Duffy, um, Lee King, who was a friend of Alison, gave Alison a knife. As Lee Duffy is coming towards Alice, David Allison, David Allison knifes him in the left armpit. But Lee Duffy doesn't stand still. He runs at, and Allison runs off. Lee Duffy runs after Allison, and basically, as he's running, his lifeblood's pouring out oh. of his of the wound. So. Martin Road was filled with Lee Duffy's blood. Lee King, who'd given the knife to Alison, gets the knife and puts it down a drain in Martin Road. So they don't call an ambulance. They get a taxi, put Lee Duffy in the taxi, and by the time he gets to Middlesbrough General, which is about five minutes away, he's dead. He's dead. And like I say, the doctor had said if he'd stood still after he'd been knifed, he'd have been okay and, and gripped his... Uh... So Lee Duffy was basically um, dead on the way to Middlesbrough Hospital. So we have a taxi, we have Lee as a scene. David Allison gave himself up the next day. Lee King was arrested as well. And there was, there was two or three others. Um, so we get to interview Lee Duffy, um, sorry, um, Alison, and um, he comes up with a, a tale that Lee Duffy had a gun. Well, there was, there was no gun as far as we are concerned. Um, it was just a straightforward, you've knifed him, you've killed him, it's murder. Didn't really admit anything else. Um, Lee King uh, admitted giving him the knife. Um, so Alison was charged with murder. Lee King was charged with being an accessory to the murder and possession of a, uh, an offensive weapon. Knife. So I was involved in the in the putting the file together. Um, wasn't a complicated file. It was assault that had gone wrong, badly wrong. Um, but uh, the court case uh, came to court, pleaded not guilty to, to murder, sent for trial at Teesside Crown Court. Um, when we went to trial, um, the barrister, our barrister, said... Um, this is going to be, I think, possibly a manslaughter conviction, possibly. 
because we have to prove that he, he meant to kill him by that one stabbing. I, I, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. Um, but when you listen to the court case and listen to the defence of David Allison, there was lots of very, what I would call, untruths. For a start, there was no evidence at all, apart from Allison, saying that, that Lee Duffy had a gun. Nobody else saw a gun anywhere. Um, the the, the defence barrister also said that he'd st he didn't mean to stab him. Um, he was just using it as defence, which is not right. Not right at all. Um, so I felt quite sorry for, for Duffy's family. Um, a dead man can't defend themselves, can they? You know. Um, and when the, when the jury went out, um, the, the defence solicitor, um, I think, I think, was humming and harring about whether it's gonna whether he's gonna go down here. Um, but it's, it was a guy called Jimmy Watson. He um, he stuck with it. He said, "No, we're we're going for it. We're gonna we think he's gonna get off." Anyway, there was a big a big uh, sigh, if you like, um, when the jury came back and he got found not guilty. Uh, I mean, you can imagine the the impact on on Lee Duffy's family, because although Lee was a you know was a, it served a lot of prison and you know he didn't deserve that he didn't deserve that but um, that was sort of the end of the Lee Duffy saga as such. Um, so, so the guy who won the case then. Did he go on to behave himself after that, or did he get get in trouble with the no, law in the future? Football, football problem, uh, football um, convictions. Um, what hooliganism? Hooliganism, yeah, yeah. But I think, I mean, as time he'd be in his forties now, probably fifties. Um, I think as time went on, it's, it hasn't been involved in other stuff. Um, but I'm not hundred um, percent. Lee King got. Um, prison for um, giving him the knife. Lee King himself got murdered a few years later. In prison? No, no. Out, outside when he got out. He got murdered and nobody nobody of them aware got charged with his murder. How was he murdered? Um, it was uh, in Middlesbrough. It was... Um, he'd, he'd been... Um, he, again, I think he he'd been knifed. I'm not I'm not 100 percent because I didn't I didn't deal with it. Um, but they got somebody they thought had had done it, um, but I don't think they ever, anybody ever got convicted. Um, that may that may may still be uh, an open case. If you're an accessory to murder, like he gave Lee yeah. the knife, and you get convicted of that, yeah. what what kind of a sentence do you get for that? You, you you're looking at between five and ten years. And would you have to serve the whole term, or is that 50%? It'd be 50%, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, in, in many ways, without without Lee King giving him the knife, it wouldn't have happened. There'd have been a fight, and that would have been it. 
you know, hindsight's a great thing. But Lee, Lee King got murdered, I think, about 2008, something like that. Yeah. And what do you think about all the interest in Lee Duffy that seems to have gained momentum since then? Um, it's understandable. Um, I don't think there's been anybody anywhere near Lee Duffy for the last, well, at least the last 30 years since he died. Uh, there's been nobody took his place in terms of what he did and his and his uh his influence if you like on the on the the criminal fraternity in in Middlesbrough and around the area and it it takes some doing to get to his level um you know because nobody would challenge him very few people would challenge Lee Duffy I'm not saying nobody would but very few would um and I think I think maybe that he's one of these figures that um, is, as time goes on, people people sort of look on him a bit bit higher in esteem than when, when he was actually out there doing it. Did you uh, come across Viv Graham back then? I, I didn't. No, no. I I, um, I knew, we knew about him. Um, we knew about, uh, his associations on Tyneside. I learned more about Viv Graham because I went to Northumbria for four years as inspector, uh, and I uh, I learned more about the the Newcastle families and and the sort of all the the ones who we we know about the Sayers family etc. I learned more about it then, um, but it's it's a very complicated case that Viv Graham, very complicated and lots of. So subplots and etc. You know, so. And and do you know how uh, Viv Graham died then? Well, I knew. I know he was. He was. He was killed. Yeah, he was. He was murdered. Um, I don't know a lot about his his actual um, case, um, but I know he was a. He was. He was quite quite associated with Lee Duffy. Um, but I, I don't know at the end at the end of the day what what it was. It's a Northumbria case that. So when you was in the drug squad then, were you up against organised crime? Yeah, very much so. Um, I ended up head of the drug squad, um, both in Cleveland and, and, and the regional uh, drugs intelligence unit. Organised crime in terms of Cleveland uh, has been going on for a lot of years. Um, many uh, importations... Um, heroin, cocaine, ecstasy. Um, one job that I, I should have mentioned earlier was um, when I was in the drug squad, was a job um, of exporting ecstasy to Australia. It's called Operation Stark, and it started in 1986 when I was at uh, Ensis. The Australian police. Um, this is this is organised crime at at, at, at a, an international level. Maybe not quantity wise, but certainly when I tell you about it. So the 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 Australian police rang me when I was head of uh, DI in charge of uh, the drug squad in Cleveland and said, um, "We've got a a guy who's ex Middlesbrough who's living in Perth." 
who we've arrested um, in possession of thousands of ecstasy. He's a he was a postman in Perth. Um, he's not now. Um, can you go to this house in Middlesbrough that we found in his when we've done his house? Um, we, it looks as though this is the guy who's sending him the the ecstasy. What they've been doing is they've been um, sending ecstasy from from his house in Middlesbrough um, to addresses in Perth. Now this guy in Perth called Reg, another Reginald Reginald Howells had got a job as a postman, and in in Perth they have outside post boxes like they do in America. So he'd been identifying empty houses. Ringing the guy in Middlesbrough and send send it to seventeen Jundalup Road. He's he's so the packages have been coming through the post, and uh, the problem they had was on this particular day they had the drugs dog in Perth Airport, and one in this particular package had broken open a bit, and the dog. Because you can't smell ecstasy. But the dog, which, you, you know, um, the dog had actually broken open the parcel. So they had a look in and all these ecstasy tablets are covered in carbon paper. So they replaced, the, they got the ecstasy out, replaced the tablets and let, the, let it go, let the package go. Got, a, got an, uh, an observation point on this particular... Um, Post box. The uh, the postie turns up, um, and uh, deliver delivers it, right. Then I thought, well, that's strange. Why is he delivering? Why is he just not keeping it? So anyway, about an hour or two later, he comes back in plain clothes. Gets it, and they all jump on him. So. Anyway, we, 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 I get a warrant out to do the house in Middlesbrough. And uh, it's a lad called Glyn Bartliff, and whose mum, whose mother, is a magistrate. So when I, went, when I go to do the, the, uh, the warrant in, Middle, in Teesside Magistrates, I said, oh, this is a magistrate. They give us the warrant. We went and did the, did the house, and um, it, was like, it was like a little factory for sending, it was like carbon paper, ecstasy tablets, box, airmail, airmail. So when we did, when we did, he wasn't there. He was in Ibiza on his proceeds. So he came back to, to Newcastle Airport, arrested. He made some sort of uh, admissions. The guy in Australia admitted everything. He admitted Two years of doing this, over two million quid, or two million dollars. So, when we got Bartliff arrested, he got charged and remanded. Um, we started looking at the bank accounts, and um, he was using the Yorkshire Bank in Middlesbrough. So I went to see the bank manager, and the, of course, in in those days and now, suspicious transactions need to be reported by the manager, and he hadn't. And uh, he was he was shaking. I said, "Well, you know, you haven't done your job, like, you know." 
when we did when we did the the transactions, it was obvious um, a lot of the stuff had gone through five or six banks in Perth. So somebody had to go to Australia, and it had to obviously be the DI. <laughs> so myself <laughs> and another officer went to Australia for two weeks in uh, nineteen ninety eight. In this period, I've been trying to get through my inspectors, sergeant, uh, inspectors interview. And uh, I, I hadn't been successful. It was 19, back end of 1997. And this was, this was the beginning of 98 when this happened. I'd applied, I'd seen Northumbria had, um, had, a, had, a, had advertised for inspectors. So I thought, I'm going to apply. I'm going to apply. So I did. I did me. I did all me, um, me interviews and assessment centres, and flew to Australia. So we had two weeks in Australia. Um, we we also had to visit Sydney to serve some papers on a, a Cleveland Bobby Hood, who who had left Cleveland and was part of uh, an operation, um, an, an internal operation called Lancet. So we went to Australia, went to Perth, went round the, the banks, went to Sydney. When I was in Aus when in Sydney, I got a call from Northumbria Police saying, you've passed the interview for the inspector. You're going to be promoted to inspector, <laughs> which was a big deal. It was a big deal because I didn't really want to leave Cleveland, to be honest. Anyway, I, um, I, I, I got appointed and I started in August. 1998 as inspector at Washington, um, which is obviously the old George Washington, etc. Before I left, I made the biggest mistake probably of my police career because I went to see the chief constable, Barry Shaw, because I felt as though I didn't, I didn't, I wanted to stay in Cleveland as inspector. I'd been acting inspector for over 12 months in charge of the drug squad. And so I'd said to him, I went to see him, and I said to him, um, do you think there'll any be, be any um, amalgamation of forces? Because at that time, they were thinking about amalgamating Northumbria, Durham and Cleveland together. No, there'll never be, never be anything, and it was the biggest mistake in my life. So uh, I, went to, I went to Northumbria, I loved Northumbria, it was great. Um, four years there. So that was sort of the end of my Cleveland... Eight, I did 18 years in Cleveland before going to um, going to Northumbria as inspector and chief inspector. Um, so um, the bit the bit in the middle I've missed we've missed out is um, 1993 to 96. I was I got the opportunity to be seconded to the National Criminal Intelligence Service is now, uh, it became the Serious and Organised Crime Agency. It's now the National uh, Crime Service um, in Wakefield. One of the jobs that um, we had uh, in my early days at uh, Wakefield was um, a guy called Philip Berryman, who lived in Stockton, 
I knew him from my Stockton CID days. And he was living well above his means. Well above his means. He had a, an old scrapyard in Stockton, which used to get a few stolen cars through. But he was, he was living far above his means. And we did some observations on him. And uh, we eventually found a boat in Hartlepool Marina, which is 10 miles from Stockton, that uh, there was lots of activity on. We found out later that um, he, uh, he was intending uh, sailing to off the coast of Africa. Um, and uh, he, was, he was picking up cannabis, or lots of cannabis. Nothing happened. Um, this would have been 95, 95. Nothing happened because of the weather. But in, in 96, um, he set sail from Hartlepool down the coast and he ended up in Gibraltar. In Gibraltar, he realised that the, the boat he had wasn't good enough, wasn't big enough and wasn't really seaworthy. So he, he tricked his dad into buying uh, another yacht in, in Gibraltar. And they, um, there was him and two guys, one from Billingham and one from uh, Norton, who were his cabin boys, sailed away. What he didn't know as well was that he was being tracked by the Royal Navy um, and that he, he, there was tracking devices used. Sailed to the, the um, office, Senegal. The, 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 there was over a million pounds, I think a million and a half pounds worth of cannabis, which is a lot. Um, they made a few errors. Um, firstly, the guys who were bringing the cannabis couldn't speak English, and Phil and them couldn't speak French or Senegalese. So there was a bit of to and and fro. They didn't take any food. <laughs> On the way back, the engine failed. So they had to actually sail. They had to sail to the Azores first and then back across to um, all this being tracked and then back across. Um, they sort of limped, eventually limped into um, the river, a uh, place in Cornwall. Um and were arrested. He's wrote two books, Phil. On Has this he? called the Wacky Backy Boat. He's wrote two books on it. Um, I haven't really read them at any length. I've read bits. It's on Kindle, I think. Mm. Went to trial at Exeter Crown Court. Um, the two cabin boys pleaded guilty. Phil got remanded to um, to Belmarsh Prison as a cat A. Um, because of his circumstances, let's say. Um, went to trial um, and um, blamed a well-known criminal in Sunderland for forcing him to sail all that way. And what? the jury accepted that. What kind of a defence is that? Unbelievable. Just blame somebody else? Blame somebody else. And he got off on it? He got off. Quite clever, though. Very clever. <laughs> Did he have a high-priced lawyer? Yes, yes, very much so. Yeah. The other two got five years each. 
Did his dad get any? His dad got nothing. <laughs> his dad, his dad. I think after a while, his dad realised that he'd been hoodwinked into into buying this boat. Um, but Phil's now, I think, living somewhere in the northeast. So if he beat that case, how can he write books about it? Because he wasn't convicted. But doesn't that like isn't he, isn't that an admission of guilt that would give new evidence to provide a new trial? I don't think so. I don't think there's anything in the Is there book. a statute of limitations? Yeah. No, I think I think there's nothing in the book. Incriminating, incriminating him. Incriminating him. Gotcha. It's all very, you know, round the outside. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> I haven't, so sounds I, like you'd be an I, interesting I, I haven't, podcast. I haven't... I, I didn't really want to read the books, to be fair. I just... I know I know what happened. Where's, where's he based now, do you know? He's somewhere in Durham, I think. I'll have to reach out, see if he wants to come on give a, his side of the story. There's a, there's a thing on uh, YouTube... Is there? Yeah, yeah. There's, Is there? There's a, um, there's a, a YouTube uh, piece on him. Has he done any interviews, do you know? Um, I don't think he has. Okay. No. Yeah. He's, he's certainly an interesting guy. Yeah. So as head of the drug squad then, I mean, we've interviewed ex-undercover cops. Yeah. We've interviewed ex-prison guards. Yeah. And a common theme that's reoccurring is now there's so much money in the black market for drugs that gets bigger every year. Yeah. It will corrupt some members of every profession it comes into yes. contact with. The drugs will always flow no matter Absolutely. who's arrested. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So do you have any, you know, did, how did you like stop the guys under you from raiding a house, seeing a bunch of cash, seeing a bunch of drugs yeah. and putting it in their own pockets? How, how do you prevent that? Um, I think it's, it's uh, you know, the, the inspector role gives you a clue on what you should be doing. That means inspecting. You can't be sitting in an office uh, as head of a drug squad. You have to be out there doing bit, doing it and, and looking at people and, and checking. And and I think it's, it's part of, if you like, the Cleveland past. If you look at it, Cleveland police past has been about... Um, corruption, very much so. And there's various figures who were mentioned over time. Um, but a lot of them, um, they weren't supervised properly. They weren't supervised properly by, by the higher echelons. You know, if you're chief inspector, there's a superintendent above you. And I would always inspect, I expect my superintendent to be asking me what I'm doing, how am I doing it, what's this, what's that. And also, I think one of the things I've learned over the years is look at things properly. Don't skim them. You know, I, when I was, after, I, after I'd been in the drug squad, I was head of crime scene investigation. And we had a, we had, you know, when you get a belly, and you, you, in your belly you think, this person is not right. Not right. We had a guy who, I, I won't name him, but um, was a civilian CSI. And he like, I just, I just didn't take to him at all. What does that mean first, a civilian CSI? Uh, crime scene investigator. Crime scene investigator. So you, you go, go around doing burglaries and the murders and the rapes and the robberies. But he's a civilian. He's a civilian. So he's not a member of the police, is that what He is means? a member of the police, but yeah. he's a civilian member of the police. What is a civilian member? What does that mean? Well, that means you're you're not you're not sworn. You're not an officer. You're not a, a police officer. 
your 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 remember support staff. I see support, support staff. staff. Support gotcha. Staff. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So this guy, um, and bearing in mind, I was head of CSI for four and a half years. I was thinking, nice. Oh, he's, he's so full of it. It's not right. Um, and a couple of times I, I'd put him on an action plan, or you know, we'd had words or whatever. Anyway, I, I left. I retired, and. Um, I think it was 2011. They did an inquiry into um, he was because he was he was used to do the arsons any any fire any fires or anything like that. They did an inquiry into this guy um, and found that he'd been purporting to have a, an an arson qualification that he didn't have. So there was dozens, if not I don't know how many cases. And he'd worked in three different police forces. So there was, they had to go through all the cases and make sure that, you know, his evidence had, had, hadn't tainted the case. Did some get overturned? Some, I think some, the, the, yeah, I think some did. So, you know, that's going back to your point about what do you actually do? As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. You, you actually inspect people and you actually supervise people properly. You've got to be there on the raids and you've everything. You've got to be there. You've got to be, you can't be on every raid, but you've got to know how things work, you know, and it's the same in any job, isn't it? Yeah. It's the same in any job. Yeah. That you, you're like, you have to be able to say hand on heart, I know that person. They, If they've done it wrong, they've done it wrong. But you, I can't, there's no way around in the police not inspecting people and not not supervising people that's what it's about you mentioned earlier when you were talking to that one suspect i was just staring at you and stuff oh yeah when you do interrogations then yeah do you just like develop a feel for people over time and you do did, yeah. did you have any other like really bizarre um suspects that you were interviewing and in? yeah I, I, we had had a, had a load um i think with with interviewing uh, interviewing changed with the introduction of um, audio. And then obviously nowadays you have audio and you have video, uh, CCTV, uh, television. I think things changed as soon as the audio came in because you really had to be prepared for the interview. You had to, you know, go through, and, and I was mentioning to Jamie on the way down, um, he, your first part of the interview is is them talking. It's called their agenda. The second and third parts of the interview are you 
If they've told lies, challenging those lies. And the, fourth, the third part is then hitting them with any evidence. Because you wouldn't go into somebody and say, I've got a fingerprint. You wouldn't do that. So there's tactics involved. There's expertise involved. And there's experience of, of interviewing people. Um, I mean, I, I, I actually do it all the time. I don't even know I'm doing it. You like it's you suss people out, you know, and you like. My wife says, "Why were you not talking?" Well, I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's thirty years of the police. What were the most bizarre interview experiences? The most bizarre, I think, was um, a guy who, when I was in CID at um, at Stockton, who um, said that. Me and another guy had been spitting on him. You? Yeah, spitting on him. Prior to coming in to the interview? No, no. During the interview? Yeah, he, 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 after the interview, he said he'd been spitting on us. <laughs> what? what? What would we spit on you for? What? what? Anyway, nothing happened in, in the end. And he, but he went to court the next day, kept him in, he got charged. And he, his brief stood up and said, oh, they've been spitting on him. <laughs> I want I want hair samples of. I said, well, well, first up, we'll, we're quite willing to give samples, but and the, the magistrates went, no, no, we're not doing it. So that like spitting on them. I've had um, I've had a couple where they've actually never said anything. Ple- one, pleading the fifth. No, no, not even that. Not nothing. Won't even tell you the name. Nothing. We had one who was um, a young a lad in a lad in, in Stockton when I was... And he, from the time he was arrested, he, he smashed a window or burgled a, burgled a shop, caught with a gear, etc. From the moment he got arrested by the police, never said a thing. Went to, wouldn't tell the magistrates, nothing. Went to prison as, as, as Mr X. Went to prison as Mr X. Got remanded. We don't even know who he is. We did his fingerprints. He's and, still... he, and he still, we still couldn't find him. <laughs> and, and in the end, I think the magistrates got sick of him and, and bailed him. He was never, never to be seen again. But that, that, that was true. And then there was, another, there was another one where um, it was a young lad in Hemlington when I was DS at Hemlington, and uh, from from uh, an Irish Romany uh, background, and he'd been caught um, burgling a house. In, in Middlesbrough, got him rested, down to Middlesbrough Police Station, Ray, can you go down and supervise him? Went down and uh, he wouldn't stand up. He wouldn't stand up, wouldn't speak, wouldn't stand up. I said, oh, let's just leave him down there. So we, in, we interviewed him with him lying down there like that and, and doing notes. He was saying there, no. He never even said no. He just laid there. He got, it's, it's another one where he got he got carried into the magistrate's court and they like half stood him up and the magistrate just said, remanded. So th- those are like extreme examples of, of what, what happened. What about people getting aggressive with you or threatening you and your family? Um, I've only really had one over the years that, that um, threatened the family and... and, and uh, it was when my kids were younger, um, 
and uh, he, in the end, um, we had to get a, a bleeper alarm in, in my house. Um, was, um, it, was he a credible threat then? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. I, I, I'm, I'm of the feeling that if you treat people right, and this is over 30 years, if you treat people right, they respect you. If you treat people bad, they treat you badly. And I always, no matter what was a murderer or somebody locked up for shoplifting, I always treat them right. Never, never, you know, n no dirty tricks. You don't need to do dirty tricks. You don't need to do them. Um, there's some people that are, are more respectful of than others. Um, but even the most um, awkward customers, um, I think if, you, if you're respectful to them, it does. Because the solicitor then can't say, you've done this, you've done that, because I, I haven't. Get the case thrown out. Yeah, exactly. Very, very few. The only one case, I think, over my career that all my life flashed in front of us was when my younger service, where we used to do notes, contemporaneous notes, and get them to sign them. And I put a case file in, um, and the case files used to have to get checked, you know, etc. And I'd put a case file in, not known that I'd missed a sheet out. I'd I'd, I'd left a sheet, and it was on it was in me de on my desk. Not by anything other than being a bit lackadaisical. So it went to court, went to trial. The judge gets it and goes, "Where's page nine? Where's page nine? But it wasn't, I'd missed it out. I just, it was on my desk. It was in my desk. And I, I'd, so anyway, anyway, he said, uh, I'm going to, if you don't, that's right. If you don't, if you don't, the judge said, if you don't produce it within like four hours, uh, I'm kicking the case out. So I was only DC then. Detective sergeant, get yourself over to your, over there, Stockton, have a look. Anyway, I found it, took it back. I got a right bollocking. For it, but that was sort of the most extreme example, really. How did you recruit informants? Good question. <laughs> um, my, uh, I ended up being a bit of a sort of a doing um, courses for people recruiting informants. So the the answer to your question is as many different ways as you can. That's from. The person in the street who sees something doesn't tell anybody and then later on remembers to the um, person who you've had in custody, they've told you all sorts, you've tested it and it's right. So my way of, of recruiting people was varied. Mainly, um, if I look at, at my first informants, they were all people who were very busy doing um, burglaries, thefts, etc., who were telling you stuff that either 
shops they have done with somebody or they know about it or they have bought the bought the stuff so it's it's going from that level from the sort of um busy uh, acquisition of, of of property to drugs now drugs you're either dealing them you're either you're either taking them or you're overseeing that so it's virtually impossible to get to a let's say an, uh, somebody who's high up in the organized crime it's virtually impossible to get to them from a from a, a user level it's impossible but you can get to them from a dealer level you can get to them from a let's call it a super dealer so it was through associates you're not necessarily speaking to the main man or the main person they we would we would target an associate who's maybe had enough of them disputes between dealers Disputes between oh, that's what happened in my organisation, Wildman and Skinner. Yeah, Disputes. they started, they fell out, and they then go to the police. Yeah, yeah. Protection of them is is a key. Just to clarify, it's Skinner who went to the police. Yeah, <laughs> it, 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 protection of of these people is is so important. You know, you look at you look at some people and you think you're not going to be an informant. You're not. You're not up to it. You haven't got the bottle. So testing them out on on various smaller jobs, um, but my my whole um, way of running informants is being being absolutely um, documenting documenting what you do, because sooner or later that documentation might go in the public eye. So my ways of of of, of getting them are changed changed as i went on and you know i mean i ended up um when i was at ensis uh being involved with intercepts telephone intercepts massive before intercepts were fashionable if you like now what you learn on intercepts couldn't be used in in court but it was a way of actually recruiting informants because you knew what they'd been doing mm -hmm. and they didn't know how you knew. So that was like the mid-90s, mid-90s. Things have changed nowadays. Um, but the answer to your question is there's, there's so many different ways, opportunities. I've had, I've had friends, you know, non-police friends who've, become informants because they know so much um so I, I think i think that's that's the higher levels um which we ended up running it's very very you've got to be very careful very careful because you know there's lots of things can go wrong did you send them out with like wires on and stuff yeah, recording yeah. people yeah yeah, we've we've done. I've done undercover um, work with uh, with informants. 
you know, running informants with undercover officers, um, wired up, test purchases. Um, Did any of them get identified by the criminals and there was a situation? Um, we've come close a few times. Come close. They had to pull them out. What What were the red flags there? Um, uh, searching them all the time. Searching the, the officers. Um, following them home. Trying to get the phones off them. That sort of stuff. Um, so... Uh, it, it, I mean, I, being an undercover officer is a, a really, really, uh, you know, I applaud them. I applaud them because it's, it's an extremely difficult area of policing. Um, but still goes on, still, still happens. One of the most heart wrenching areas of policing is crimes against kids. Yeah. Were you ever involved in investigating any of that? Um, I, I was unfortunately, and and before the days of child protection units, um, one really tragic case in Billingham when I was DC um, was uh, a guy who he was a window cleaner, and uh, there was this young lad who was who was disabled. He identified this kid um, as a potential victim. Uh, and used to do the windows. Um, we we got a call um, to say, look, I'm I'm not happy with this guy. He keeps coming in the house to do the windows, which I thought he did the windows outside. But um, and anyway, when we when we discovered what he'd been doing, um, this this kid um, was severely disabled, mm. been going into the kids room and uh and buggering them oh my god oh. but not only that these were the days of the vhs video camera he'd been he'd been actually filming himself buggering the kid creating evidence against that could be used against him yeah, absolutely yeah. so we found out about it did his house and found all the tapes oh jesus um he, what a monster. he, he got 12 year it's not enough, is it, for these no, people? And and I mean the kid, bless him, you know, this kid was was helpless. Oh, Jesus. Um so that one that was a that was a particularly I mean it, uh, I suppose the only positive thing that happened was he did admit it because he couldn't do anything else. Was there other victims or No, it was just that kid. So, so you must have a, a good a good sense of achievements to get a monster like that off the street. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. And this was this was like the late eighties, so it's a long time ago. Um, but I mean, um, the, the 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 biggest problems, I think, child protection wise, uh, I found particularly when I was in charge of the drug squad, we'd go to houses in Middlesbrough. Uh, drugs raids um, and children you know babies in my first week as inspector in uh, in in Middlesbrough I took two babies off off addicts one of the one of the women shouted as we were taking the baby out and you can f and keep the baby which we did bloody which hell we did. bloody hell I mean it's just it's heartbreaking heartbreaking you know and um that that part of it you know dealing with the kids and 
particularly, you know, where you go into properties that are absolute tips and you think that these kids shouldn't be in here, you know. So uh, lots of that, lots of that sort of stuff. Why um, did you eventually retire? Just 30 years in. Um, I, I, I'd done my time. Um, I, because I taught before I was in the, in the police, um, I, uh, I, I thought I'd go back to teaching. And I did, and I have. Um, in fact, uh, you know, now, uh, even after 10 years, I'm still doing a little bit. I was drawn very much to uh, special education. Um, and I've worked in various schools in, in, in Teesside. I work for a firm called Nudge Education now, which deals with kids who aren't at school. You can imagine with um, the last couple of years we've had, that a lot of kids are very are not going are not going to school, and nudge, basically either kids who are not not attending, or won't attend, uh, or kids that have been um, been excluded. So I I, I'm, I feel as though I'm putting a bit back, you know, and after after what forty odd years, I'm still using my teaching's qualification. Yeah, you're a good man indeed, but but you have had some bad luck in recent years, yeah, according to Jamie. Yeah, yeah. Is there anything that you want to talk about? Yeah, I mean, I, my, my daughter, my oldest daughter Laura, was a was in was in child protection. She had um, she had uh, seven eight years servicing, and she contracted uh, breast cancer. So unfortunately, she she passed away in oh my um, God. in. Uh, March last year, March oh 2019. God. Sorry, how old was she? She was 35. Bloody hell! Um, we've got two, two grandchildren, um, Lola and Sammy, who are now six and eight. Yeah. And it was it was it was up absolutely. It's in it's indescribable. Um, the effect on the family. Um, our husband Steve is a is a sergeant in Middlesbrough. He's you know he's kept going, um, but you can imagine the weight. It, it's, you can't describe it. Yeah, you know, it's it's indescribable. And I mean, she was the you know she was the the light of our life. You know, um, police officer, servant police officer, in child protection, loving her life, netballer. You know, foot and uh, and and mum. Mm. Um, so we we'll never get over that, um, but. Uh, you know, we, 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 the people around us support us really well. Our, you know who your friends are. Do you know what I mean? And you're still doing your sports. I'm still doing, yeah, I'm still, I'm still doing my football. I'm um, involved with Billingham Town, which is the local non-league side. Um, I'm still, still involved with that. And I, I love, I love the football. And uh, I, uh, I had some, I had a, a an operation in uh, March last year on my bowel, and uh, I lost three stone. Jesus! So I um, I'm fully recovered, um, but the you, the NHS unbelievable. What was the diagnosis? It was um, it was an Ill, I had it. What's it was a non malignant growth on my bowel, so they did an ileostomy, which is a bag. I had that for oh over a year but I went back in in April the same doctor did the operation Dr Gill 
fantastic, unbelievable. And since April, I've just got better and better and put the weight back on and I'm back to doing a little bit of teaching as well. So they removed the tumour? No, it was a tumour, yeah. A tumour? Yeah, tumour, yeah, yeah. Uh, was it a really big thing? Or? Yeah, well, you'd feel it in there. Yeah, Could you? Yeah. Oh. oh. Sean, it was... It was and when I first went to the doc, this was in January last year. Yeah. When I first went to the doc, I wasn't very well. went on holiday and I wasn't very well. Went to the doctors and he said, oh, it's your diet. I said, no, it's, it's like I can feel it in here. Yeah. So I went to see another doctor and, uh, you know, and he said, oh, no, 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 no. He said, you're going to, you're going to the local hospital. Get yourself up there. Yeah. Went to see the specialist and they were brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, I was in hospital about eight days getting the operation. And then uh, put the bag on. And what happened was, beginning of this year, I was so hacked off with it. Mm. I was thinking of going private. Um, so I got myself booked in to a private hospital, paying the money to six, seven grand or whatever it was. Anyway, um, I get ready on the day. They did all the tests. The guy who's doing the surgery comes in on the Friday and says, oh, I'm not doing it. I said, uh, you're dehydrated. So they didn't do the operation. So he says you have to go back to the doctor, back to North Tees, and have another another go. Fortunately, lockdown was just finishing. So when I first had it, it was the beginning of lockdown. When I had my other operation to get rid of it, it was the end of lockdown. So I got a call on a Friday from North Tees saying, will you come in on the Monday and the doctor will do you? I'm back to, back to normal. Wow, that's fantastic. So we've had a bit of a challenge in the last couple of years. Yeah, definitely. From a good point of view, my youngest daughter is now pregnant. Oh. So I'm expecting our fourth grandchild. Um, in February last year, we had um, my third grandchild. Uh, my, my son, Darren, had uh, Harper. Congratulations. So we, uh, we're looking at, uh, I think it's April this next year that yeah. uh, Michaela's. And what made you want to come out with a book about your life story? It started um, from uh, Jamie, Jamie Boyle. He'd, um, he'd interviewed us about Lee Duffy and I was telling him about all the other things that have happened mm. and my, my family and, and everything and, you know, and what had gone on. And he said, Ray, you, you're going to have to write a book. Yeah. After that, then the documentary came... Uh, with Dr. Burkett, uh, and things just sort of took off. I always thought that the book would be a tribute to Laura. And there's a lot in the book about my family and about, you know, my past and a lot about music and football. And and it's it's sort of me, you know, in, in words... And I've no, it's it's been it's been good for the family because part of what I did was a bit of genealogy as well, and uh, the genealogy takes you back to like, well, on my mum's side, takes us back to like the 1600s. Wow, which is a long way. What was your family up to in the 1600s? There were fishermen, fishermen in, in Berwick, <laughs> fishermen in Berwick, and uh, uh, it. The reason I know is that um, my parents, um, my mum's side, were all Freeman of Berwick. And the Freeman of Berwick records are absolutely spot on. 
so I can tell what everybody a lot of a lot of the my mum's side uh, were from Berwick. My dad's side were all from either Northumberland and then came to Tyneside for shipbuilding, a lot of shipbuilding and heavy industry. Um, so that's the sort of my, my and, and I mentioned about my 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 uh, uncle Arthur. A lot of them fought in the war. All three, all three of me, me mum's brothers fought in the war, Air Force, Navy, and an army. And my cousins, I've got lots of cousins. We had it once I started doing the book. We had a, a Skype call, and there was fifteen or sixteen <laughs> of us. We'd learned so much from each other. <laughs> it was great. I bet, I bet you've never done that. No, no. And it, it, it really is. Yeah. It, it really is beneficial. All the cousins. Yeah, so that's that's in the book as well. You triggered a question there then. Yeah. Um, Freemasons in the police. Yeah. Do you have any knowledge of that? Yeah, I do, yeah. I, I've, I'm not being a Freemason, but I know a lot of people who were. I think in, in years gone by, it was a little bit of a, a help to get you up the ladder. But there's lots of people who are Freemasons who didn't get up the ladder. So I think it's fallen out of use just just over time, I think. But maybe going back to the sixties and seventies, it probably was was part of the deal. Getting the getting the you know up the ranks. Can't wait to read the book then. And a huge thank you to Jamie for organising the interview today. And we're going to be doing the audio book for you. And a huge thank you to you, Ray, coming thank you, in. I've I mean, enjoyed it. you've been through so much. It's such an amazing story. I can see this book doing really well. Mm. And but you're so stoic as well, and you're yeah. like. You just got there's something about you, some some really positive. You can just see how you know you've tried, you, you've made all these positive changes in society, mm. and you've got that karma going forward. So you know we salute yeah. you for all this, this brilliant work that you've done. Yeah. So for the people watching this, then please let us know in the comments what you thought about this video. All the links will be in the description box below this video for Jamie's work and whatever he's doing with Ray. Any socials will be down there and Jamie's YouTube channel. So please support what he's doing. He has arranged multiple guests for us over the years. Some brilliant guests like you've heard today. So it's very important that we we support his work as well. So um, huge thank you for coming on. Yeah, appreciate Thanks. it. Cheers. Enjoyed it. Thank Enjoyed you. it. Excellent. Thank you. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Instacart shoppers know groceries. They know that you can't make guacamole with rock-hard avocados. They know how to quickly find those peanut butter pretzels you can never find. And they keep you in the know by giving you updates about your order along the way. 
Let Instacart shoppers help take shopping off your plate so you can get time and energy back for what really matters. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Instacart. Add life to cart. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.